know have no actual truth value to them. They're just their own prejudices that they choose to have. But having been raised up into the age to come with Jesus spiritually, we are now waiting the judgment that has commenced in the resurrection. Now the evening talks are trying to work out the relationship between these two states, between this resurrection world where we are spiritually and this physical world where we're feeling cold. Our spiritual state in Christ and our physical state in this world, a world of suffering as we await the resurrection. Now tonight we're living as lords of creation. So let me start off with a discussion or the, the difference between secular and secularism. For Christians are secular, but we are not secularists. Ours is one of the most secular of all religions, but our enemies in Australia are the secularists. And so there is considerable confusion about these words. Uh, I only have the Webster's Dictionary with me, so excuse me, those purists of the English Oxford uh, variety. But secular is an adjective to which Mr. Webster gives me eight alternative meanings. One, of or pertaining to worldly things, or to things that are not regarded as sacred, that is, to temporal things, things of this time, of this world, not of that spiritual world, not relating to or concerned with religion. So you have sacred music, uh, hymns, secular music about this world. How much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> or concerned with non-religious subjects. So secular schools are schools that don't teach you theology. Secular schools are schools that teach you geography and mathematics and, and history unless you are a pure mathematician and then you know that that's the study of heaven itself. And fourthly, it's not belonging to a religious order. It's not bound by monastic vows. More of that in a moment. Fifthly, it's occurring or celebrated once in an age or a century. So the Romans had the secular games. They happened each phase of history. And number six, continuing throughout the ages. That is, secular has to do with temporal, has to be with this world, this age. As a noun, number seven, a lay person is a secular person, and as opposed to an ordained minister who is a sacred person. And number eight, there's the secular clergy. Now, the very fact that you could use such a phrase as secular clergy should ring bells to say, well, that's a strange thing, because I would have thought a clergyman, by definition, was, was sacred, not secular. But within Roman Catholicism, there are the, the, the monastic orders who are separated from this world. They go off and live in a monastery. Some of them don't even talk, don't even talk to each other, never leave the monastery. And then there are secular priests, they're the ones who function in the world. Because the word secular just means in the world, of the world, of this age, of the kind of bottom line of our diagram. What about secularism? Well, secularism is a noun. No, sorry, let's just backtrack to secular again for a moment. Can you go back one phase, one picture? 
Thank you. You'll notice where secular comes from. The dictionaries, it's really important to read the little bits down the bottom. Secular is a 13th century word. May have come from before then, but the earliest references the dictionary has to it are 1250. A Middle English word from the Latin meaning worldly, temporal, as opposed to eternal. And so for the Latin it means of an age or of a long period of time. It's of this world. That's where the word comes from in the 13th century. Now, secularism, it's a 19th century word. We know when it was actually created. It was in 1850 to 55. Uh, it means the secular spirit or tendency, especially a system of political or social philosophy, that rejects all forms of religious faith and worship. The view that public education and other matters of civil policy should be conducted without influence of religious beliefs. That is, the secularist says there is no other age. The secular people believe the things of this age. The secularist says this is the only age. So a Christian can be secular, but a Christian can't be secularist, if you hear the difference. Because a secularist says there is no other age than this age. Whereas a Christian says there's this age, so we're secular, and there's the other age as well. So when in our government formulations we have secular education, it doesn't mean that you have no references to God. What it means is the education we're talking about is secular education and there is also religious education that goes with it. Our government is a secular government. That is, our government is not allowed to make rules about religion. It's only allowed to make rules about this age. But Australia is not a secularist nation because you're allowed to believe in religion in Australia, any religion that you're allowed to believe in. And the majority of Australians do believe in God. And so there's no reason why you would ban people praying or reading the Bible or holding a conference like this in Australia because it's not a secularist nation. That's not the nature of our nation. It's not even a secular nation. It's a very spiritual nation. The vast majority of Australians pray. So it's a secularist. It's, not a, it's a secular but not a secularist nation. However, our government is limited to only secular matters. That's the nature of the government. Do you get the difference between these words? Because a lot of confusion happens about them and a lot of public discussion which is ignorant of the fact that secularism and secularists are actually a very modern invention distorting the word in its old meaning. I've got a four-point summary here. One, the word secular means of this age, but doesn't deny the presence of another age. The word secular was not denying any other age, but emphasising this world as opposed to the other world. The word secularism is 19th century, and four, it explicitly is denying the existence of the other world. So Christians have a secular outlook and philosophy, but are not secularists. We ought to be secular because... We believe in two things in particular, the creation and the resurrection. And now you hear why I'm talking about it. For look at the relationship of the resurrection and secular religion. See, the resurrection teaches the reality 
and importance of the material creation, while acknowledging the reality of another dimension of life, the reality of a new age, which is a physical age yet to come. When Jesus dies, his spirit leaves him, but when Jesus returns to life, it is as a resurrected man, physical, real, in this world's terms. Now look with me to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is appearing after his death in his resurrected body to his disciples in Luke 24, picking up verse 36. And when they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. See, Jesus goes out of his way to demonstrate that his resurrection is a resurrection of his physical body. That he, the man, has returned. Not a different man, the same man recognisably the same man. Why, with the marks from the previous before-death experience that he has. The resurrection is about this world being carried into the next world. Jesus doesn't cease to be human in his resurrection, but he takes our humanity into the resurrection age and into the Godhead itself. Thus he establishes the eternal value and significance of the physical created order. The resurrection affirms for us a connection between this physical world and the world to come. Our resurrection as Christians so far may be spiritual only, but we're looking forward to the resurrection of the body, to the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore we have an earthly concern, not just a heavenly one. For we see that this world matters, and what we do in this world matters. That we are and always will be humans, and that it is as a human that Jesus rules the world, and that as humans we will share in his rule. Notice the difference between this and mysticism. Uh, New Age mysticism, Eastern mysticism. The the concepts of there's one world soul which comes down into creation in little drops that occupy bodies for a little while and then goes back up and joins into this big one world soul. Uh, Losing all sense of individualism until, in many cases, it gets dropped back into another body, next time back into a cow or a dog or a cockroach, depending on the law of karma as to what you did last time, and then gets merged back into the oneness that is the world soul. In mysticism, you see, you escape the creation. 
But resurrection is about redeeming creation. I will still be me, you will still be you. I will still be a real physical person as you will be a real physical person. We will be more glorious than we are at the moment, but we will be us. Mysticism denies the creation, resurrection affirms the creation. Atheism denies the resurrection and the resurrection life. It denies that there is another world. Mysticism denies this world and only wants to have that world. Christianity has the world to come and this world as well because we are connected by the resurrection of our bodies. We don't believe in reincarnation. That's a different way of understanding altogether. Nor the immortality of the soul. That's not it. We believe in the resurrection of the person. Body, soul and mind and whatever it is we are made up of. Well, let's look then at what the Bible, humanity and creation are about. And we start off with humanity in creation. You see, at the climax of the account of creation in Genesis 1, we find in verses 25 to 27, God creating humanity, God creating man in his image, in the image and likeness of God. What makes us human isn't the bundle of abilities that we have, that we can talk or that we have a morality or that we have a rationality or that our thumb pushes against our finger. What makes us human is the place God has put us in, a place of relationship to him. We are in his image, a place of relationship to the creation. We are to subdue it, to fill it, to multiply, a place of relationship with one another, for all of humanity is one. We are one flesh, one blood together. See, we're like God in that he is the ruler of the universe and he creates us to rule the universe under his authority. We are the lords of his creation, commanded to fill it and to subdue it and to have dominion over it, to run the world as God would run the world. But our position is given to us. It's not derived from us. God doesn't make everything and then look around and see which of the creatures is the best to rule. No, humans are made by God with the intention and the purpose that they will be his rulers. And we all share in that one humanity. There is no to be distinction in this regard. It's not that some of us are in the image of God and others aren't in the image of God. We are all share this together. And this means we're not to be treated as the same as animals. In Genesis chapter 9, whoever kills a human is to be killed because humans are made in the image of God. Now, my friends, this is... This is kind of basic that lies at the background of Western civilization. So basic is it, so profoundly behind the Western civilization that by and large, many of us, especially those of us who are raised in Western civilization, have no knowledge or awareness of just how significant it is, how fundamental and basic it is to our way of thinking. You see, there are no sacred cows that we cannot kill. 
The rats of India are sacred and cannot be killed, even though they are eating so much food that the people are hungry and starving in places. But you can't kill them because they have a drop of the world spirit just like the human has a drop of the world spirit. Why, they may be your great-great-grandfather who was very naughty, which is why he's a rat now. <laughs> he was a rat then, now he's a rat really. <laughs> you mustn't touch him because he is part of the world spirit of life. We do not believe that. We have a very different attitude to the animal world and what we can and can't do. But it's being challenged and reversed in Western civilization now by atheism. Classically, by Professor Peter Singer, who is the professor of bioethics at, the, at, at, at um, Princeton University, one of the great universities of the world. He's an Australian, if you count Melbourne in Australia. <laughs> He's an Australian. I'm sorry for anybody who comes from Melbourne. I really am sorry for you. Um, <laughs> but I understand why you've come. I can, that, that makes sense. Um, I shouldn't go on like that, I, you know, especially if you're doing social work. I know you're sensitive. Um, <laughs> Peter Singer is a great philosopher. He's an atheist. He does not believe in God. And thus, he does not believe that humans are created in the image of God. And if humans are not created in the image of God, but are just evolved animals like every other animal is an evolved animal, then there is no reason why you should have special ethical distinction between humans and other animals. And so, from his early PhD work about uh, animal rights, he wrote about speciesism. You've heard of racism, now he's writing against speciesism. You've heard of feminism, he's writing against speciesism. We should not make distinctions between species. Now, once you come to that point of view, then of course you, you have to be a vegetarian, although you have a problem then, because why should you be eating vegetables? What have they ever done against you? <laughs> and so he has to then invent the idea that there is sentience, there's thinking, because the vegetables don't think, how he knows that, I don't know. But because the vegetables don't think, it's all right that we kill them and use them and eat them. But animals do think, they do feel, and therefore, because they think and feel, we mustn't kill them and eat them. That would be a wrong thing to do. In fact, we mustn't own them. To have a pet is a dreadful thing. You may have a friend, but you don't have a pet. What right have you got to own a dog? A dog's got as much right to own you as you've got to own a dog. And so you change that kind of basis of thinking. And then the whole of your view of relationship to the animal world starts to undergo transformation, significant transformation. And so if a person loses their capacity to think, they lose their right to life. Ponder that for a moment. So we know how to solve dementia problems now, don't we? You can kill them because they don't matter. And of course, abortion is perfectly appropriate because they're not sentient beings. And of course, abortion really, once the baby comes out and you see the baby is not what you wanted, then there's no reason why you can't kill the baby a day after its birth as well as before. In fact, he accepts killing babies for the first 12 months of their life. 
And of course, there's no reason why you wouldn't have homosexual sex because you know, whatever people agree upon, that's all right. But there's also no reason why you wouldn't have sex with animals either, provided the animal's willing. If it's a choice of the animal, that's perfectly all right. And now suddenly you're getting a completely different world, aren't you? You're getting the world that is reshaped by atheistic philosophy. See, most atheists are just inconsistent. They don't believe in God, but they live the God way. Peter Singer is consistent. There are other consistent atheists that are around, uh, that have lived and have argued. Nietzsche is one, um, uh, Ayn Rand is another. There, there's consistent atheists around, but most aren't. But Singer is. And Singer just keeps... The whole Western civilization is built on the doctrine of the image of God, that humans are different to all other creatures because we alone are in the image of God. Remove God, you remove the image of God. If we're no different to animals, then there's no reason we don't behave like animals. Because, and that is the argument that is being used. You'll hear it in the homosexual argument. Uh, you know, all these animals practice homosexuality, why shouldn't humans? It's completely natural. The fact that humans may in some ways be different to the animals is an irrelevance. Once you've got rid of humans being in the image of God, which is an inevitable consequence of getting rid of God. For if there's no God, how can you be in his image? You hear the argument that happens? And I'm not talking about some weirdo lunatic. I'm talking about the professor of philosophy, of bioethics, at Princeton University, I'm talking about the, the atheists, the Australian atheists, atheist of the year. I'm talking about somebody that our federal government has ordered, has given an order of Australia to, or uh, which gong in particular I can't remember, but he is a world-recognised philosopher and one of Australia's, one of the, the we're proudest of. But understand Professor Singer and you'll understand Christianity because we are so fundamentally different and the difference is being worked out because he does not believe we're the lords of creation for he believes there are no lords of creation because there is no creation there's just existence nobody has created anybody <laughs> Because there is no God. And so that kind of fundamental belief that lies in the American foundational documents, that it is self-evident, it's not self-evident to him, it is self-evident that all men are created equal, is not true. Different people have evolved with different abilities, capacities and functions. And... For him, there is a fair egalitarianism until you lose your mind, then you lose your life. For him. For Ayn Rand, whoever is strongest wins. I look after me, you look after you, and whichever is of the strongest will win. And if you're weak enough to want to be altruistic and try and be moral, well, more fool you. 
you're actually interfering with the survival of the fittest. In fact, you're demonstrating that you're not the fittest because you think of other people other than yourself, when a really fit person would only think of themselves. Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged and the rest, one of the great 20th century thinkers, fundamental behind the right-wing economic growth and developments of the later part of the 20th century. She is the foundation of the economic rationalists and it comes out of a different philosophy of life. You shift the basic philosophy, it takes a while for people to work out what the implications are. It takes a generation to see where it goes to. But where it goes to is something radically different than you may have ever expected. The account of Genesis becomes more specific and detailed when we see Adam and in and out of the garden. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the man is placed in the garden to work the garden, to keep the garden, to eat of the fruit of the garden, but the garden is his responsibility. He is to subdue it, he is to work it, he is to keep it, but it is also his delight and his sustenance. It's beautiful in its creation. Notice that being in the image of God means that you are a worker. It's part of our true state. Work is not the punishment for sin. Work is what we're here to do. Animals don't work, we do. We may get them to work, but they don't work. You see, the cow, the cow munches, the cow sleeps, the cow lies about, the cow moves. But the cow doesn't work. We work. Work is of the nature of humanity because humans were created to work this world under God's authority. But that introduces us to the Adam who is outside of the garden scene. For Adam in his willfulness is driven by God into the world of death, the world of dust to dust and ashes to ashes, the world outside of the garden, the world of difficulty. He still rules over this world. He still remains in the image of God, but now, now, while he is still responsible to rule, the image is disfigured. And the world he has to rule is not a garden of pleasure, but a wilderness of hostility. And so work becomes difficult and unpleasant. Now it's hostile to his endeavours. For the woman there is now pain in childbirth and difficulty in her relationships. And for the man there is now sweat and pain and toil in his work in the, in, a, in the world which is no longer a garden but full of thistles. And things only get worse from there on in. In chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain kills his brother Abel. Lamech becomes a violent murderer and a polygamist. And by Noah's day we read in chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Having turned our back on God, we have walked away from God. Humanity even uses work to try and assault heaven. Come with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, 
let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. And the Lord says, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of the people and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the, all, uh, of the earth. Still one humanity one humanity functioning together, one humanity created to rule the world and therefore able to rule the world, but now it's a sinful humanity, ruling the world not for God, but ruling the world for themselves, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to build their way into heaven. And so God confuses us so that we can never operate together in harmony. We, we never can. <laughs> It's a fascinating thing. You get the world harmony, I mean, there's the people who have created the, 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 the language that everybody was supposed to learn back in the 1920s, wasn't it? Um, uh, which nobody has ever bothered learning much. Um, Esperanto. Hands up those who speak Esperanto. Yes, you see. We're all supposed to speak Esperanto, and if we all spoke Esperanto, then we could all understand each other, but nobody got around to teach us. So... <laughs> There's the attempt like that, and then there's the, you know, there's, there's the United Nations, which can't agree upon even who should be sitting on the council in the United Nations, let alone actually do anything. And then there's, of course, uh, the Olympics, where we all come together in order to cheat each other with drugs. And then there's <laughs> humanity can't work with each other. And because we can't work with each other, we can't actually rule the world as we should. Global warming is a classic in it, isn't it? I mean, more and more overwhelming evidence of the massive problem that we have, which is not going to just confront our nation as opposed to another nation. It's going to confront everybody. And yet, can we get ourselves together to do anything about it? Uh, the problem's not the science. The problem's not the technology. The problem is the inability of humans to work together. That's the problem. And it will always be the problem of humans. Because that is the way in which the judgment of the world, the judgment of God upon the world, has come upon us. We are unable to be united. However, within the Bible there are other themes, especially the theme of salvation, a theme that commences with the promises of God, that he will provide a seed for the woman who will crush the serpent and the search for the seed which centres on the family of Abraham and Israel. I'm assuming that you know the Genesis account, but you may need to read it to see it. When God judges the woman, he promises her that one day her seed, her son, her seed will crush the serpent, the devil. But the devil will actually strike his heel. Genesis 1 to 3 is a complete Bible. You don't need anything more. Everything's told by the end of chapter 3 except chapter 3 verse 15 because you're told something else is going to happen there's this seed going to come and crush the serpent 
That's why Genesis chapter 4 starts off with the birth of the baby and the woman says, here it is, and it's not. It's Cain and Abel. That's not the seed. And then Noah's born and they say, here he is, and no, Noah's not the one either. And so you keep looking for the seed. That's how the storyline of Genesis unfolds. You keep looking for the seed and Abraham looks like the one because he's the one God speaks to. But then he dies and he's not the one. You might like to think about Abraham for a moment, friends. You see, if a man says to you, look, God spoke to me the other day and he told me that I'm going to be the most significant man in human history. You know, in years to come, everybody will know my name. You would say, I've got a friend who's a doctor. Who, let me take you along. I'll just, you know, I mean, people who say things like that, you know, have you gone off your tablets lately? I mean, there's a whole range of responses that you like, like to make. Abraham said that. Abraham lived in tents. He never had a house to own. And he said, through me, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And people who curse me will be cursed and people who bless me will be blessed. Nobody believed him much in his own age, especially as he said, it's going to be my descendants who will rule the world. <laughs> he didn't have any children. His father was, his name, Abram, is a Hebrew word which means father. And uh, so you meet him and you say, hello, what's your name? And he says, my name's Abram, father. And, oh, how many children have you got? None. <laughs> so God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And so no longer was his name father. When people introduced, they said, what's your name? Oh, my name's now Abraham. I'm the father of many children. <laughs> and how many have you got? None. <laughs> I mean... He was a laughing joke. And when he finally had a son called Isaac, the name Isaac means a joke. <laughs> you had parents as old as Abraham and Sarah, you would be, you know. And so it seems bizarre, the whole story seems bizarre. How on earth could you believe a man who lived in a tent who thought he was going through his children to rule the world? And today, across the world... There is no man from the ancient world known as much as Abram. The Muslims look to him, the Jews look to him, the Christians look to him. In fact, many of the wars of today are fought over the issue of who is the true son of Abram. Because the Muslims do not want the Jews to be the true sons of Abram. And the Jews don't want the Muslims to be the true sons of Abraham. And those who oppose the things that Abraham said God told him 4,000 years ago are happening today. They continue to this very moment. Maybe he wasn't mad. Maybe he did hear God speak. However, when Abraham comes you start to see the importance of the history of Israel. It's a history of Israel in and out of slavery and freedom because Israel was the grandson of Abraham and Israel looked like the one, only he wasn't. I mean, I take it you know the story of how God took Israel and his family down into Egypt by Joseph, and then hundreds of years later, rescued them back out of Egypt, out of slavery by Moses. 
But let me remind you of the challenge that lay before them when they entered into the land that God had promised Abraham, the promised land, so to speak. There the nation was offered paradise, like the Garden of Eden paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land with vines that they hadn't planted, with houses that they hadn't built that were to be theirs. It was theirs given to them by God as he had promised, to enjoy the riches and the benefits of life under God without enemies. And Moses, on the edge of the promised land, just before his death, explained it all in the book that we call Deuteronomy, of which we read a little while ago. And it's important for them to understand what's been happening. So in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 8, as we read, Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. The word nomi means law, deuto means to, it's the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. Verse 2, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that that comes from the mouth of God. It was a 40 years humility training in the desert to learn to depend upon God. For the problem with work is that it works, at least in part. And when it works, we become self-reliant. And we think that our wealth that we have is all because of our work. We think we have the brains, we have the education, that by right we deserve what we have and what we've built and we can do and by and large we can do whatever we want to do. See that's the point of the Tower of Babel. God looked at humanity working together and says they can do anything. But it's in the end only by virtue of where we're born. See if you had been born in Central Africa rather than New South Wales, why you wouldn't most likely have survived many of you into adulthood for the rate of death is so great amongst little children. And our capacity for looking after ourselves really comes from our reliance upon each other and upon our government and upon our system of, of, of economic structures. And finally it's really upon our reliance upon God because we can in the end only do what we can do because of God, because of the abilities that God has given to us, because of the situations in which God has placed us, because of the history which God has provided for us. But as active workers, we become self-made people. And the self-made man worships his maker and rejects God. We forget God, especially when times are good especially when you're wealthy, especially when the harvest of the crops come in, that's when you forget God. When that is when you should be giving thanks to God. We think that we can trade and do what we want. When, when I ask you what are you going to do when you leave university, apart from the art students, you've all got an idea. <laughs> art students know what they're going to do. They're going to join the queue outside uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> But 
We all have an idea. You say, we've got a plan. I will go and do this. I will teach here. Or I'll go and work in this firm. Or I'll take two years on overseas travel or I'll do this. But remember James chapter 3, James chapter 4 rather. James 4, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll get such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not want to know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. As it is, you boast in your ignorance. Sorry, your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The whole economy can collapse. We enjoy a society where only 5% are unemployed. But if you're in Spain, youth, youth unemployment in Spain is something, what is it, 40%? The chance of you just going and getting a job, doesn't matter which degree you've win, there's real problems. Our ability to do what we can is not because of us, it's because of being placed in this context. A great world collapse of the economy and the one we've seen in the last few years is only a small collapse compared to the one in the 1930s. And people keep on saying it can't happen again, but it can happen again. <laughs> and it can happen with incredible speed as suddenly everybody loses confidence in the, in the economic system and walks away from it and thousands are unemployed. But it's not just... Our system may collapse overnight because it's all built on trust and promises and not on reality. You know, in, what is a pound worth in England? A pound is worth a pound. But what is a pound? Well, that's a pound. That's what a pound is worth. It says on the English banknotes that if you go to a bank, they will give you a pound for it. So you go and you give them the pound and say you want a pound and they give you back the piece of paper they just gave them. What is it that we have? We have a piece of paper. That's what we have. Well, you guys don't have pieces of paper. You just have numbers in the sky. As if you think somehow they're valuable to have numbers in the sky. They're just numbers. They don't really mean anything ultimately. If the system collapses, they mean nothing. You can have all the zeros you like at the end, but in the end, it's only zeros. No, you need to understand the system can cut, but... It's not just the system, the individual can. I've been coming to mid-year conferences for a long, long time, since 1976, actually, um, was the first one I came to, which is not surprising because it was the first one. Um, <laughs> and most of you weren't alive in 1976, by the looks of you. Uh, and I'm very thankful to God that we've never had a fatality at a mid-year conference or driving to or from, but it can happen, can't it? I mean, given the age of the drivers and the fact that half of them are men, there is a very high probability of serious accident happening. And it could be you tonight, couldn't it? Or this week or this weekend or it could happen at any moment at any time. And it may not be your bad driving. A woman I knew back in my university days who was doing postgraduate studies, she pulled up at the lights and stopped at the lights, waiting for the lights. The man behind her, drunk, ran into the back of her, gave a whiplash, and she had brain damage for the rest of her life. 
She was just sitting at the light. She wasn't doing anything wrong. Just sitting there. Just did what you and I have done a thousand times before and thousands of times again. What makes you think you are in control of your future? That you can make decisions? Because you keep doing it effectively at the moment is no indication that you'll be able to do it effectively in the future. We are not self-governed. It is an illusion that we need to understand. So God offers to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy the choice of life or death. If you go across to Deuteronomy chapter 28, Deuteronomy 28, as they go into the garden, as they go into the, the paradise of the promised land, as God provides for them this wonderful land, we read in Deuteronomy 28, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. 28 verse 2, And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young, uh, young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Or down to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all the commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all the curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field and cursed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall you be you when you go out. Go across to chapter 30. It continues on this whole long section. Verse 15 is the conclusion of it. See, I have set before you today, chapter 30, verse 15, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land and you, that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I'll call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your father, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to you. There is the choice. It's back to the Garden of Eden. Till the garden, look after the garden, care for the garden, and it's all yours to enjoy Disobey me and you will face death. Now they've returned to the, the promised land and God is saying, Obey me and yours is life, full and free. Disobey me and it is curse. And the history of Israel in the promised land is the history of failure. 
Failure to conquer the land, failure to trust God and demand the king, failure in the king to lead them in godliness. And so the kingdom becomes divided between the ten northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. And then the Assyrians come down and conquer the ten northern tribes. And then the Babylonians come down and conquer the two southern tribes. And so the people of Israel return to being slaves, no longer slaves in Egypt, but now slaves in Babylon. And there God tells them how they are to live and to work in Jeremiah 29. Seek the welfare of the city that has enslaved you. A city that will not last. A city that is oppressive because you're going to be there for 70 years. So marry, have children, have lots of children because in 70 years time I'll take you home. But until the 70 years are up you'll be living in Babylon. But they're never at home in Babylon Remember that psalm that people sometimes sing? I've forgotten who made it famous. Was it? Psalm 137. Good. I didn't hear who you said, but I believe you. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. There's no pleasure and joy living in slavery in Babylon. For they are a dead people, crushed. Israel was only ever a minor country, crushed by the superpowers of the ancient world, with no human reason to expect that it would ever recover. Have you ever met a Girgashite? Have you ever met an Edomite? Have you ever met a Moabite? Have you ever met a Hittite? See, all these were big nations, strong and powerful nations, but you never hear of any of them these days. They've all gone, one after another. In fact, the Babylonians have gone. In fact, Babylon has gone. And Nineveh, the great city of Assyria, the biggest city of the ancient world, it's just a rumble, just a, just a rubble now too. You don't meet these people from these ancient cultures. They've all gone, except Israel. The Jews are still here, scattered all over the world, persecuted and hated by people for no good reason. The nation that Hitler tried to exterminate. Hitler's gone. Nazis are gone. Israel's still here. How odd of God to choose the Jews. A little nation of no significance and no importance who he said, though you are dead, yet you will live. Now I'd explain that to you, except you've got to do your own work on Ezekiel 37, haven't you? This is the background to Ezekiel 37. I'm not going to give you any more than this because I don't want you to do anything but study the Bible for yourselves in this regard. But there is the background of the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's the people under the judgment of God looking completely and utterly hopeless. 
but God. Rich in mercy. See, all this is the background material for the resurrection, which brings Jesus, both the son of Adam and the seed of Abraham, fulfilling the promise, for it says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Eve's son, born under the law, the son of Israel. He's a carpenter in the time of Roman occupation of Israel, a man, one of us, but a man made to rule the world. The whole nation is waiting for the promised kingdom and he comes saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this message. And in his death and resurrection, he becomes the Christ, the Lord the ruler of Israel and of the nations, the ruler of humanity and the world, the fulfilment of the creation of man. For now the resurrection age starts with him as its Lord. Come with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Just a couple more points and then we're going to have a break for a sing. Acts 4. Stick with me now. Something here you've read many times if you're a Bible reader and haven't noticed. Acts 4. As they were speaking to the people, this is the apostles, Peter, John, James, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. What were they preaching? Look at the text, please. What were they preaching? What was their message that so upset the Sadducees and the priests and the captain of them? What was the message? Was the message Jesus' resurrection? No. Look at it again. It was not Jesus' resurrection that they were preaching. They were preaching something different to that. They were preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That is, with Jesus' resurrection came the resurrection. The new age has commenced. In Jesus is the resurrection. Oh, yes, that involves Jesus' resurrection, yes. But the importance about Jesus' resurrection is that it shows you that the resurrection has commenced. The new age has come. The kingdom has arrived. The Christ has come. So when Paul was preaching in Athens, the philosophers of the day heard him preaching and they couldn't understand what he was talking about because he was talking about foreign gods called Jesus and resurrection. And they thought that was two gods, Jesus and resurrection because it was so central to the gospel of Jesus. And in chapter 17 of Acts, he says that the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance of the judgment that is coming by a man. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Now man is on the throne. Now the Son of Man is in glory. Now the man, the perfected image of God, rules the world. Now the man who is crowned with glory and honour. You looked at these things today, didn't you? 
Psalm 8 is being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. Colossians 1 says that Genesis 1 is fulfilled in Jesus. The Son of Man of Daniel 7 who comes to the clouds in glory is fulfilled when the man rises up to come and sit in judgment. But he doesn't come alone for he has purchased for himself a people, his people, a people who are zealous for good works. And so we now have a man ruling the world as man was created to rule the world. Now we see the man that God has created the whole world for in his place of rule and authority. And we share with him in the resurrection if we're Christian people. So now that we have risen with Christ spiritually, how do we live physically as we await our physical resurrection? How do we live now as lords over creation? Well, that's heading number three, and I think we need to have a break in our brains for a little while by singing a really nice song.